82, one day at a time, the final 22 days of football with like a second parter in there as well. You have made it, we have made it. Kieran O'Hara, welcome on. All are up, but I wouldn't say it was 22 days of football. There was maybe 12 and 10 of just like general hackery and other stuff. Hackery Mick Foley, how are you? I'm good. Just just so happy to have made it this far, to be honest. There was times when you were watching, I don't know, what, Belgium in the USSR or something like that. And you just wondered, nah, nah, I'm going to have to come down from the mountain here. But we made it. In fairness, again, we've made it again. Again. It's like we're, we're invincible. Betty Joe Patton, we're invincible. I put it to you. Was it? Uh, that, that was my sentiment exactly that that I, I'm I'm proud of my achievement of making it to the end, um, and I'm just thankful for all I've gleaned from all these games and it's information that I'll quickly forget. But anyway, we'll talk about it today. But Billy sounds like Hillary. I wonder does that make Colin Sherpa Tenzing? <laughs> Colin, I'm just. Uh... <clears throat> I've I've nothing really to add to any of it. Uh, I have a stuff to add to the podcast, but as regards uh, intros, no. Just um, I'm just I'm just happy, Rob. I'm happy. I'm happy. <laughs> lovely to hear. It's lovely to hear that. Simple simple sentiments. Yeah. So no, deep. I'm not going to over. I'm not going to overcomplicate it tonight. I know I've gone too deep, uh, too quick before, so I'm just going to pace myself tonight. I like it. There's a lot of talk. We were revolving. Kevin, you're along for many reasons, not least the fact that you made us do this. So we're, we're, we want to speak to yeah, you at the end. Yeah, I, I take full responsibility. Uh, also, I like the fact that I was in at the beginning, then I dipped out for a while, and then I came back at the end. So I feel quite refreshed. feel happy to be talking about this exciting final that we're looking ahead to. <laughs> that sounds a bit like uh, Jean-Francois Larios' approach to a World Cup, I have to say. <laughs> there at the beginning, dipped out for a bit. Don't know. Why did he dip out? I don't know. And back in at the end there again. I can confirm I didn't go to Barcelona to look for a better deal. I can confirm. (laughs) (laughs) Kev's other woman was Qatar 2022. Didn't go to Barcelona for a better deal. That's just screaming out for a Mrs. Latini reference, but I'm not, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Well done. Well done. That's the kind of focus we need because this is the final. We've got a full game to review. It's Italy. It's West Germany. It's... £10 to get in, Mick, but most people didn't pay £10. Apparently it was 10 quid. Do you know the way you see these, like, you know, like, Kieran, you do it with the shoot magazine prices from time to time. You go, oh, jeez, inflation's a bastard. Yeah, apparently there was like £10 tickets you could get in 1982 for the World Cup final, but they were selling for 250 quid, mm. which sounds about the right rate of uh, inflation for a World Cup final ticket on game day, I'd say. Isn't that about that? What's that? That's, that's, I don't know how many times £10 that is. It's lots. Anyway. Yeah, that, that sounds like the Super Bowl stuff, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, like, oh, tickets retail that, but actually we're selling for $1 million. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's, a, it's that kind of a... Yeah, fair enough. It's a World Cup final, like, you know. Lads, we know what happened. But for the sake of getting started, we know Italy were slight favourites going in. Kevin, jump in on this. If you can just separate your knowledge of what you've just watched. If you were sitting down to watch this final now, what would you have been expecting? Okay, well, you've got to remember that I'm older than you lot, so I remember—I actually remember sitting down to watch the final, like, in real life. So, uh, and also, I haven't seen the whole final for this purpose because our, our uh, thing didn't work for me. 
So I had to go uh, hunting on the internet and I've got a patchwork quilt of various different uh, bits of coverage. So I think I've got a sense of the game, but not the whole game. But the one thing I did get actually was the uh, I came across the beginning of the BBC's preview to the final, mm. which uh, links into Mick's story about the, the tickets. So uh, Jimmy Hill, who ha- looked like he was on a roof overlooking the Bernabeu, and if someone gave him a shove, he would have ended up in the centre circle. Uh, not that we give him a shove, obviously, and we're not, and we're not, we're not condoning violence, but you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, the, the deal there was that uh, Mr. Havalanche had, Dr. Havalanche, actually, as uh, Jimmy described him, had come out and complained about the ticket situation and all that sort of stuff, and then, then proceeded to show two lads try to climb their way into the stadium, which was kind of very interesting <laughs> and death-defying. They just about made it, both of them, grabbed by the neck of their collar and the seat of their pants, but they got there in the end, so it was all good stuff. Hang on a minute now. I'm trying to get a good mental image here now. You're saying that somebody tried to scale the walls of the Bernabeu. It's a tall stadium, like. Three lads, one lad at the top and two fellas climbing up desperately, hanging on for their dear life, and then they get yeah, pulled that, up. That wasn't it, a booth. Like you, there wasn't one holding somebody's foot. foot. Like, this was no, proper, back game stuff. They must have... Yeah, one guy, I don't know how he got in, but the other two get carried up, and Jimmy Hill, Jimmy Hill was loving the, the kind of... The excitement of all, and the fans were all behind them, and it was a big cheer when they got there. It was great stuff. This is human fly stuff. <laughs> it was parkour <laughs> stuff before we had parkour. Yeah, it is great coverage. The one thing I noticed about the coverage, uh, and it's you know, it just kind of shows how we've become so used to knowing, getting a sense of geography. You know, like now with there's there's drone cameras for every match. And remember when Paddy Kilty was on, he was talking about the FA Cup final day that there'd be a helicopter while they were on the buses and all that kind of thing. You get no sense of that, like. You don't see outside the three tiers of the Bernabeu, other than obviously the guys scaling in that I missed. But I mean, you don't get an aerial view of the stadium, where it is in the city. It could have been a ground anywhere. The only other weird thing in that BBC coverage, sorry, just to jump in for the beginning, is that on that rooftop, you end up having Jimmy Hill and Bobby Robson trying to talk to the guys in the studio in London and they can't hear them. It's all very complex. And then they go to Bob Wilson, who's pitch side, and he interviews, bizarrely, John Hollins, his old Arsenal teammate, through the fence, who's sitting amongst all the Italian fans. Mental stuff altogether. (laughs) Anyway, I digress. Carry on. John Hollins obviously forked out 250 for a ticket. But it's kind of it. It's re. I found I found uh, that story about the tickets reassuring. And all this changing in the world, you know, things were the same back then. And if anyone was trolling through Instagram during the World Cup final this year, and you see people, you know, how did they get in there for the, for for that game? You kind of realise that that's the one thing that stayed the same. So maybe FIFA corruption should be welcomed and embraced and that it's the one thing on this planet that seems to be a constant. So I, I'm kind of comforted by that. So you think the three books are Salt Bay? <laughs> <laughs> Mick, will you uh, set the scene? There was a lot of talk in the press before this from both managers. And to be honest, I, I've seen a collection of the quotes you've been work, trolling through the archives. I think there's, there's some of the most um, elaborate quotes from managers before a World Cup final, possibly ever. I don't think we'll ever see the likes again. 
Well, I don't know. I mean, you can't speak to anything before 82. I, I can't. I can't anyway. Although I, I can't imagine Alf Ramsey was going out of his way to say too much in 66. Uh, Minotti, I'd say, was probably a bit of an old vagabond in front of the microphone, all right, when it came to it. I don't know. But, like, what struck me was that, you know, we're at the final and it's it's classic good guy, bad guy stuff here now. You know, I mean, West Germany are clearly the bad guys of this tournament. Italy are the guys on the white horse coming in trying to save save the day here. And they're strong favourites to win it. But as you say, the, the quotes are are candid. And it's another thing we've talked about throughout this tournament. Candor. Freaking lads are not afraid to say stuff. So so like Darrow Darrowald, the uh, West German manager, is obviously asked what he thinks of, of Italy's prospects. And he says in relation to the semi-final against Poland, they did not find their playing rhythm, and I'm optimistic that the Italian team has already had its best matches of the 1982 competition. And goes on kind of to, kind of to say, I, I think we're in a good spot here to pick him off. On the other hand, like, Beerzot is, like, different, different. He's trying to calm things down a little bit, and he's saying overconfidence, he said, is the first step towards tragedy. So, like, you already have that kind of contrast between the Italians kind of, being fairly dignified about the whole build-up and the whole idea of being strong favourites. And the Germans just completely and utterly leaning into their role. Like, <laughs> we are we are here to completely spoil the party and we are, we are showing absolutely, well, little enough regard for our opponents pre-game. We're just going to fucking take them. Like, you know, they're, they're kind of done. This despite the fact that the Germans are kind of rolling in exhausted Correct. from their exertions in the semi-final. Correct. Absolutely wrecked. And I mean, uh, you know, we'll come to it later on after the game, whether that's the case or not, I guess. But like, yeah, it's only a few days after the uh, the game against France and extra time and the stress of penalties and all the rest of it. I'm sure the Italians are sitting back going, yeah, we can pick these guys off. It's interesting as well, actually, when you look at the coverage, when you know, when we know now the starting 11s, there was an awful lot of um, tomfoolery going on around who was going to start for Italy because Antonioni was injured as you might recall from the previous game and Gentile was coming back into the team because he was out of the Polish match so everybody assumed Gentile would be in and they also the Italians seem to have successfully got the line out that Antonioni would play but of course Antonioni doesn't play uh, and young Giuseppe young old Giuseppe Bergami uh, comes in uh, Italy changed formation here like they go with five at the back now I'm not sure if that's because they in returning Gentile, Gentile to the side wanted to retain Ber- Bergami or what the rationale was but they went with five at the back for the first time in the tournament and that is probably the switch that gets them over the line here they're just so defensively solid and that allows them to meld that with the attack they have and get the win here. Well, just on that, I, I was kind of, uh, I think as everyone was, underwhelmed by Italy through the group stages and the results speak for themselves. But when you think about the way they've dealt with the injury to uh, to Antonioni and then even Graziani going off early, you know, really, really early in this game, I, I think the most impressive thing... Um, what uh, you know about Burzot's team is, is the actual tactical flexibility. You know, it was it, they were the by far the most tactically advanced team in, that I saw in the tournament. When you consider that we're talking about players there, Gentile is comfortable playing anywhere across 
the the back line and can can man you know is has been given various man marking jobs on different types of players who operate in different areas of the field and he's felt comfortable. Bergami, Colavati, all comfortable there. Cabrini's more of a you know a natural left back, but then Oriali, I think he played right back in one of the one of the group games in the second phase. Um, so th- that that ability is, and then you add that to what Conti does and his flexibility in the midfield from left to right and and back and over. I I think it's really really impressive what they were able to do, and um, and yeah, I think you even see I think you even see that sort of flexibility in this game as well. The the, the Italian defence is the kind of as Kieran alluded to there, uh, uh, Billy Joe said as well that the way they can they can shape things from, and they're they are flexible. But that defence, I actually saw them in person the year before the World Cup when they played Celtic in the European Cup. Uh, and it was Zoffingo, Gentile, Cabrini, Shirea, Marco Tardelli. They, they were fantastic and they've all played in the World Cup. The one guy who didn't make the World Cup who was in that team was Roberto Betica. Roberto Betica was the big guy, the big silvery hair guy up front. Uh, and he got injured during the season uh, against Anderlecht in the European Cup and then he didn't make the World Cup. And obviously Rossi was still banned when the Celtic game happened. And then he comes in to almost take the, the place of Betica, if that makes some sort of sense. Mm. Uh, but I'm just thinking what what Betica would have brought to that team as well. If he'd been fit and able to play himself and Rossi up front, it was almost like a full Juventus team then, with a few extra players popped in, you know? Well, it was, there was six Juventus players there that started the World Cup final, which is some going. You know, I mean, that's, that's incredible. Um, and in, in, what, in, what am I saying, three years' time? They're going to win a night. They're going to win the European Cup tonight at the Heysel Stadium disaster with four of this team plus Boniek and Platini. So this is you know, and it's mentioned in in the coverage actually afterwards that you know this is a this is a moment probably where Italian club football kicks off itself as well. You know, winning the World Cup and you've got the likes of Boniek and Platini you now suddenly arriving in Serie A. But that's maybe for maybe maybe for later on. But we we've kind of set the scene for outside, but this this stadium is rocking and, and it really does feel like it's the Italians moment. Maybe that's just an impression I get from, from having watched the whole game. You leave the game thinking, yeah, there was a lot of Germans there, but by God there was an awful lot of Italians. I think the expectations, it was their time. It, it all seems to it's all you get that feeling. Even when the penalty's missed, you don't really get that feeling that they're they're falling apart. No, uh, certainly, you know, Mick set the scene there very well about the build-up to the game and how obviously the the Italians were the ones that were expected to save football, um, you know, and the dastardly West Germans, etc., etc. And that's kind of very, uh, you know, oftentimes in sport, especially those things don't turn out the way uh, people want them to. Um, in this case, right from the off, the Italians looked uh, extremely con- kind of comfortable, uh, I'd say, with that the tag of, of favourites, first of all, and also being the people's kind of champions heading into this game. Uh, the crowd, as you say, Rob, it was absolutely rocking huge. Seemed to be, you know, Italian support outnumbering German support, flags, etc., etc. Um, so, yeah, really strong opening to the game. And I had no idea, um, obviously, had, knew the result of the game coming into it. And, and um, I had no idea the order of the goals, though, which was, which was good, I suppose, when you're going in and watching a game like this. I had also no idea that there was a penalty miss Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I mean, <laughs> twenty-five minutes into the game, uh, I think it was Rossi was fouled. Um, yeah, yeah, it went down under a German challenge, and it was definitely a penalty. I think there was no doubt about it whatsoever. Uh, pretty, pretty rough German uh, ta- or West German tackle, which was uh, standard for the time and the day. And um, Cabrini steps up to hit the penalty, and it was certainly one of those ones that had um, 
had he got lucky, uh, it would have scraped in. It was, I think it's safe to say it was scuffed. I mean, for my mind anyway, and I, ugh, I'm not pretending, I'm not going to pretend that I remember every single penalty in the World Cup, but the ones that live long in the memory, one of them from an Irish perspective would be Tony Cascarino's penalty against Romania in the second <laughs> round of the World Cup in 1990, when he almost took up a quarter acre of the turf just before he hit the ball. I thought I'd never seen as bad a penalty in the World Cup as that one, and that one went in. But this one from Cabrini, so he kicked, he hits it, and the first thing that happens is that paint flies up from the penalty spot, but he scuffed yeah. it so badly that more paint flies up when it bounces on the six-yard line, and then it kind of bobbles away up past the left-hand post. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I would have thought a man that handsome doesn't miss penalties like that. It was completely at odds with this god. Like, I mean, what's going on there? Like, I, I was amazed. Mick, as a, I can tell you, as a handsome fella, it's it's no <laughs> no guarantee of scoring and a penalties. Humble one too. Exactly. A humble a, well, hu, hu, I mean... Humility and handsomeness are not. Uh, but uh, but you're right. It's like you know that shot that um, Di Maria and Ozil kind of perfected. Uh, like the deliberate shot of bumping the ball into the ground and skip, skipping it over the the keeper's dive, that they're obviously doing it on purpose. And it's something that they've obviously, you know, it's a skill they've, they've learned. Well, Cabrini <laughs> seems to do it by accident. There's a golfing term when you hit the ball like on the heel or the toe, and he very much hits it on the heel of the uh, of the driver, literally on the heel of, a, of his foot. Absolutely terrible penalty. He's still a little bit unlucky, uh, if you ask me. But I had no idea, honestly, that uh, Italy missed a penalty in this game. And to miss a penalty early in a final that your favourites for and the whole world is expecting you to win, and for them to then respond the way they did, um, I think you know speaks volumes to how together they were and how their tactics, is, as Kevin and Billy already pointed out, were so um, on point on the day because it didn't phase them whatsoever. The penalty miss didn't phase them whatsoever. They kept on, uh, kept on going from there. Uh, now it was a pretty poor first half, all told. But uh, yeah, the penalty miss didn't um, didn't set them back. But it did cement Cabrini's place in history as he is the first player to miss a penalty in a World Cup final. And and Colin just said it. When you get to the final of a tournament, you want it to reflect the tournament as a whole. This match kind of does because the first half is terrible. We've got the usual wayward, long-distance shots, pot shots is the best way you can describe them. I mean, Rumenig at one stage early in the game has, what, nine times out of ten, you're backing him. He's got his back to goal. It's coming to him. He's shielding any sight that Zoff can have from it. He's turning, and he's just got his orientation completely wrong. Like, it's about 20 yards wide then when he turns, whereas... You know, of the footage I've seen of Rummenigge down the years, he buries those opportunities. So uh, you get the sense early on that he's he's missed the previous game, he's back in, but that gives a sense that maybe he's not fully able for the game. And beyond that, like the Italians have a series of pot shots and, and the butchery oh, exists yeah. throughout the first half. Like some of the challenges, there's the one that leads to the penalty. Later in the game, there's another one that leads to a free that's quickly taken, and we'll get into that when we talk about the resulting goal. But, like, at half time, you're looking at this going, what must they be doing in the dressing room? And, you know, from what we can gather, Mick, like, the Germans go in in disarray, whereas that miss 
seems to solidify or unify the Italian team and steal them for the second half. Yeah, it does. It does indeed. Um, I, I, and again, it's just, to me, for me, it just it just shows the contrast between the two teams and where even where they are in the public consciousness coming into this final. So as you said, they go in at halftime, it's nil all and Cabrini is devastated, as you can imagine. First player to miss a penalty in a World Cup final. And also, I wonder, did he see the fist pump from Tony Schumacher as well? There was a fist pump from Tony Schumacher as the ball goes wide. And it's one of those ones, it's almost like, we have them. Like, this is our, I can't. And this is Schumacher who didn't believe they'd win the World Cup all the way through the tournament. It's like, I think we got them. We have them now. But they go in and um, Bears are recalled afterwards that the, they were very shaken. Every The whole team and the manager were very shaken by the penalty miss. And Cabrini devastated. But in the dressing room, the players all got around them. The entire team got around them. Kind of G'd them up made a promise to each other, not a new thing in a, in a dressing room like, but they all promised each other to go out and lift their game in every which way and win this thing. Down the hall in the German dressing room, an entirely different scenario is unfolding. So because Antonioni is not playing, Uli Stielicke, the sweeper, decides that he should be playing at midfield, which is his normal position. But Derwald says, no, you're staying where you are. And the argument continues at halftime. Uh, there's a stand-up argument in the German dressing room between Stilich and Derwal about where he wants to play. And Derwal is not having it. He talks after the game, Derwal, that you know when he made a change in the second half, Horst Rubesch comes on for, for Dremler when Germany need to get after the game, chase the game. Stilich has started protesting on the field about the change and kept on shouting, says Derwal, for the whole of the second half. So you've got, and I mean, I actually thought this was Stilich's best game in the World Cup for that reason, that he he clearly decides, if you watch the game, he's clearly decided I'm going to come forward anyway. But it's just, it's just that contrast between the Italian state of mind and the composure, if you like, and the resilience against just the continuing wildness in the German psyche and that, the psyche of that team that just seems to be prevalent from before the tournament all the way to the final. There's something about Stilich in this game. I don't, not sure that it's because it's hometown. You know, he's playing for Real. It's his stadium. Like he's on edge throughout. Now maybe he slept in his own bed and popped into the game in the Ford Fiesta. Who knows? <laughs> but it's just every time you see him during this game, he's wound up over something. He's wound up over the concession of a corner. He's wound up about where he should be playing. You just get a sense that if more of the Germans had his attitude, they could have really gone after this game. I, I don't like disagreeing with the two previous speakers, but in this case, I'm just going to have to sh- shoot them right down. You know, it's all very well and good doomed, talking about doomed. it's it's all very well and good talking about what players or uh, you know said and what they're feeling at halftime. The real turning point in this game at halftime came when Enzo Berzo walks across the field with his new blazer, a lighter colour of blue draped over his shoulders his pipe in one hand his shirt absolutely crisp and at about 110 degrees Fahrenheit and he strolls across the pitch like he's in you know it's like John Travolta and is it a Saturday Night Fever and you could just see you could just see the Germans you could just see the German players just think we're, we're fucked we're fucked here there's, there's no way he winks at Paolo Rossi as he goes to the thing and I'd say after that the Italians knew this is this you know our leader our leader has showed the ultimate confidence in us and, and it's, a, it's, it's only one way after that. Now, you know, I jest slightly in that, but in, in rela- I, I do think that 
only slightly. I think that I think the confidence that he exuded throughout, uh, uh, you know, adds to the fact that confident he had the confidence to make all these tactical changes that we spoke about earlier. But I think that coming out at halftime, the Italians know that they have the Germans because I think fatigue starts to play a big part towards the end of that first half, and then it's quite. It's probably a good time to half. talk about the managers because <laughs> they're they're two sides of the same coin. Like they've both had similar progress to the position they've both come up through their respective fa systems they've worked with underage teams but Berzot, you really want him to succeed here because he's been so adventurous in his management of italy throughout since he takes the job in 75 and it's there's a continual progress with them now look the germans have a euros behind them but yupterval a doesn't exude the kind of cool that Berzot does <laughs> but he likes he polo just, shirts. Everything we've heard about him, you know, from the book of Schumacher, etc., is like he doesn't have his team standing behind him. He's not a leader. He doesn't turn around and find they're all behind him, ready to go. Whereas, as you say, like Bears, that's giving Rossi the wink. They love him. <laughs> they're going to do it for him. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, we, we could talk all night about how suave and sophisticated looking Enzo Bears that is, and I think Billy Joe, I, I, I agree with you. Actually, you know what? Like it's on a serious level, actually. If you were a player in that Italian dressing room, yeah. I thought, but I thought Italy were terrible in the first half. I thought the Germans played whatever bit of football was played in between the bouts of brutality, of which there were many. I'm not, no, maybe I would expect more. But like, if if you were those players going in and you were doubting yourself, and obviously the penalty, and you did see Berzat, and they liked him, they did like, they really did like him, uh, compared to the other the, the other dressing room. He's just so calm. He exudes calm. And maybe that's and maybe after a tournament, at the end of a tournament like this, in the biggest game of your life, that's all you need. It's calm. Calm. That's just nil, nil nil. Don't worry, we'll work for each other. We'll get there. Like I, I always I like I like the story of Berezot because he was under such pressure at this point in his career. Remember, you know, media ban, they're not talking to anybody. Up till the, the match where they beat Brazil, the country has turned its back on them, really. Um he's chanced Paolo Rossi. Suddenly, Rossi is, you know, five goals in at halftime in this World Cup. He's five goals in, flying, doing exactly what Beerzad said he would do. All he needed was match was, was matches. Another thing that, that hasn't been mentioned, actually, in, throughout the series is that Beerzad did not bring the Serie A's top-scoring striker to this World Cup, Roberto Pruzzo, who played for Roma. He was a top scorer in the Serie A for the previous two seasons. He did not bring him to the World Cup. So when you've got Rossi misfiring and you've left your top-scoring club player at home that's going to bring its own pressure but he's he's not he's it's a great quote from one time he says i don't chit chat he said that's what makes me different from other italians he clearly saw himself as something as something of the other within italian football and Kieran, to your point like about blending of catenaccio and total football and i think we found in this we started out this thing going this is beers art football it's it's a different type of italian football and it is but this match kind of epitomizes all the stuff that you expect in an Italian team as well. The solid defense and all that. And then they're reliant on a couple of really, really outstanding individuals in attack when they do go forward. So he's paying tribute to the traditions of Italian football here as much as his own convictions and beliefs. Colin, you want to come in, come in there? 
Uh, I can if I can remember because Mick's Golden Globe speech there went on so long that it was just <laughs> hey, listen, kind of... If you want me to listen. stop, right? If you want me to stop, start playing some piano or something. Otherwise, sit back and enjoy. Can you cue that up? Can you cue that up? It's going fire. No, I, I, I'm, I'm, la- I'm laughing a bit about the, the, the history of re- revisionism here. I know it's slightly tongue-in-cheek with, with Billy and... Well, let, let, you know, Mick, in fairness. I think just to, to capture the first half again, okay? It was crap. It was crap. <laughs> it was crap from both from In both summary. teams. Yeah, and but you like, it. Uh, no, I mean, I, ju- I, ju- I just did find though, just watching the back that yeah, I, I, I think with all the pressure that was on the Italians, the penalty miss could have been uh, a turning point, and it wasn't. They were both teams like take your pick. There were still both of them crap. But I love the uh, the poetry of the Winks and the um, the Blazers, and um, yeah, it's. Uh, I'm 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 like a fan listening to this. It's 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 genuinely wonderful. It's uh, history's history is written by the winners, and I guess in this case, making Billy Joe the real winners here. So I just I'm just enjoying it. That's all I wanted to say. <laughs> Where's he gone with? Once once Italy do get on top, and Mick, you've you've remarked on it. Like Rossi's record, you know, six goals in a World Cup would be impressive if they were scored across the previous six games. But like. He gets six goals in three games. Like when he, when he turns it on, he turns it on. Like those, we talk about big game players. He scored these goals in their most important games. That's ultimately what it comes down to. And when you see the goal he gets in this game, I'm not, I think it's Cabrini is running alongside him, like trying to get legs on it. There's another German defender and he puts his head where the other two are putting their feet. It's such a great goal. He's determined to get it. It's such it's a such goal. It's such a great goal. Kevin, you can lead with this here because it's it's like Tardelli going, wait, wait, hang on a minute, let's just move this ball fast. And then it's like, anyone like who's learning about Gentile through this tournament, like I am, you know, I've heard about him, then you witness him as, a, as, as the beast that he can be. But then he puts in a beautiful cross. Beautiful. The, the goal comes actually about five minutes after they win a free kick in exactly the same position and exactly the same player gets fouled. Uh, Oriali gets fouled after about six minutes or so of the second half and they get the free kick and Tardelli just cracks one of those another one of those shots, almost hits the corner flag. So the next time they get the ball and they get the free kick five minutes later and Oriali's fouled again, no such messing. Ball down, quick free kick, out wide to the right. And then, as you described, like a beautiful cross by Gentile. Like we've, we've talked before about Gentile's brutality and his ability to keep players quiet and all that sort of stuff. This is a gorgeous cross, but 25 yards out, bends it in. Uh, I think Conte could have got it, couldn't quite make it. And as you described here, Rossi finds a way to make it his in the six-yard box and ball in the net, 1-0, and they're off, they're away. Billy Joe, every so often I see a moment in football, especially a game like this, where you like, the game looks so easy now after like 55 minutes of awfulness. It, it, is that how you do it? Why didn't they do that sooner? I, I think, look, there's no doubt the goal gives gives Italy confidence, but it, it, it really knocks, it, it knocks West Germany back. I, I think there's a, there's a, there's a certain approach. I, I think Italy are... Uh, they're cagey at the start on purpose because I, I think they know that the exertions of the semi-final that West Germany had just played in will, will play out at some stage. So I think they, they know that they're going to be stronger at the end. I, I feel that. And I think West Germany as well were the team that were on the front foot 
in the first in the first half, but didn't really have the quality, as Kieran pointed out, to to lay a glove really to create anything of note. But then, the, it, the game totally changes once that goal goes in, and and Kevin is right there. It's like one, it's real Gentili just playing that, you know, uh, guiding that ball through the the corridor of uncertainty. And 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 <laughs> to to use a terrible term, I don't know who who, who uses it now, but and, and and Rossi's there. But after that, you see the confidence oozing out of players, and I think Conte takes over the game as a as as a, as a thing to be beautified. He decides that he's going to beautify this game with what he does after this, because he's he's rolling the ball under his boot at one stage over on the far side. He does a drag back and then rolls it round the corner to get away from a defender. He's trying audacious little chips over in a free kick. You know, fifteen minutes later, he tries to chip a ball over the wall like something Diego Maradona would do. He is just out untouchable. And then you, you, the crowd. You, you mentioned Rob earlier. The crowd just starts to react to that. At, at times, they're they're cheering every touch at one stage for five or six touches on the far side, and you know that you know then that West Germany are goosed, and you know there's more goals for for Italy at this stage. And 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 in all fairness to them, they create two more beautiful goals. The mayor of Rome, as as Conti was known. I mean, he he's just he's pure class in this next spell of the game, and the late great Pele believed he was the best player in the tournament. Now, he, mm. he ultimately doesn't win that accolade, but he's a joy to watch in the next period. And then we get, you know, the the definitive moment. Like 12 minutes after the first goal, Tardelli gets his. And what I love about this, you know, everybody talks about the emotion on his face and the celebration. But I didn't realise until I read it today, what he's screaming as he goes away is, Tardelli! <laughs> it's like he's impersonating the commentator, like every one of us did. When you were in the garden trying that, he's literally Tardelli shaking his hands and you're just gone. That is magnificent. It's one of the great moments in like the televised history of a World Cup. Yeah, just on that, on the on the FIFA website, there's a couple of, you know, alternative camera angles of that celebration because you're so accustomed to seeing the one that you've always seen as he wheels away. And it's just interesting to see it from the different angles. It's, it's well worth uh, two or three minutes. The thing that we don't see normally, like when we, we, we've all seen the Tardelli celebration with the arms outstretching, as Kieran said, that's that's so brilliant. Imagine, imagine Tardelli, like you say, like every eight-year-old or ten-year-old did, like half an hour later. But like what you don't see is what happens after, and the look on Tardelli's face as he goes back to to you know restart the game. It reminded me of two things. It reminded me of Jerry Armstrong actually after the Spain game when he scored the goal that day and he didn't even know he'd scored a goal. He was so overwhelmed with emotion. Someone had to say, oh, you scored, you scored the goal. Um, and it reminded me, some, uh, if there was an element of the Argentinians in the last World Cup final just gone by, that that sort of overwhelming emotional feeling. In Tardelli's head, he's probably thinking we've the game, we, I could have won the game here for us, you know? And it's just that feeling of, you know, the game of his life coming to fruition for himself you know can I just say as well and I know we've skipped straight to the celebration and I think that happens all the time right when you discuss that yeah. goal even you discuss this game yeah. you just go straight to the celebration yeah. because it's so it's iconic why we all missed the penalty but the goal <laughs> it's like yeah, the whole yeah, world yeah. doesn't know that penalty it's like, was missed <laughs> it's, it's, it's like as if nothing else happened and to be brutally honest the Altabelli celebration for the third goal is, is also quite uh, you know spectacular I want to talk about Altabelli as well but, but keep going Billy Joe you're on the roll there yeah no I, I just I just want to say we talked about flexibility we talked about Berzo being in um, you know, much more attack-minded. That second goal 
is is all those things. Sharia strides out from defence, like you know, right through the middle of the field. Oh, of, of course, West Germany are vulnerable. They're they're pushing forward and they don't have that much en- energy to get back. You know, who goes with them? Bergamy is the one that goes with him. You know, Sharia comes out, exchanges a pass with I think Conte. Conte pays it back to Sharia, who at this stage has moved into the penalty area. He then like audaciously backheels it to Bergamy. And Bergamy, you think, oh, this fellow's going to panic here now, centre half, and just have a go because he's way out of position. 18 years old. 18 years old. No. He passes it back to Sharia, has the knowledge to recognise that he's onside. Sharia is ready for it. And then the peace of mind as well by Bergamy the second time. Sharia plays a pass. Obviously not intended for him. Bergamy recognises that. He doesn't let it through his legs, but he kind of dummies dummies it by letting it go along beside him. He might have got a call from Tardelli behind him, but he, he probably recognised by the weight of the pass that it wasn't meant for him. It was hit a bit firmer and it scooted by him. And then Tardelli kind of scoops the ball with his left foot from right to left to bring it into his path to hit it with his left foot. And at this stage, the Germans are back and there's about three Germans diving at his boot to try and block it. And he just gets the perfect finish away. And if you want to look at the definition of a goalkeeper being rooted to the spot, Schumacher in that instance is because he just... He knows instantly. No point in moving. Now, can I just say, in a Golden Globes reference, the audience are now on their feet applauding that. The piano players. That is piano players. That is one of that is one of the speeches of the night, right there. (laughs) Colin, would you agree, or what do you think? No, I could listen to that all day, uh, Mick. That's (laughs) beautiful. That's pure. Colin's putting the piano away for that one. Yeah, Yeah. no, I'm, I'm letting that one fly. You know. Yeah. Somebody bring Denzel. out the Mexican and, accordion. <laughs> <laughs> but but this this has now broken Germany because they've got to go all out and that's what results in Altabelli getting the third is you know they catch them on the counter. And Rob as you say like he's an interesting yeah. character. Like he's someone we're all familiar with because you know he went on to captain the Azuri at a time when we'd have been watching football we knew him from UEFA Cup finals and things like that. Like, he's a serious player. Kieran, the cross he puts in for the penalty is is a beautiful ball in an awful game that has no moments of brilliance. I, like, anyone want to jump in there? But it was just, I just thought it was just such a, like, all the player could do was foul. <laughs> it's like, it was either going to be a goal or... Oh, he's, he's a terrific player. And, and the perfect foil, I think, in this game for Rossi. You know, I, th- I, I think... We've talked about, you know, the players they were missing and Bettiger would have definitely made a difference. But Altabelli is a super player and it's a great goal as well. It's it's very similar to Tardelli's in, in the manner of execution. But I mean, it, it that's it. And that's the point where we see Presidente Pertini, you know, up celebrating. And I mean, we'll come back to him because there there is a story around how he associates with the team. And what he's trying to do by associating with the team. This is it. Game's done now. And all you're wondering at this point is, is there a fourth? Is there a fifth? What, what I liked about the goal was that, it again, I keep going back to this sort of good guys versus bad guy thing, I know. But the the goal begins with, with Hans-Peter Briegel flinging himself down yeah. trying to buy a yeah. penalty. That was yeah. never, never a penalty. And the referee, uh, the Brazilian Coelho, who by his first non-European referee World Cup final, this guy, just, and he doesn't have a great game because, I mean, there's a lot of GBH in the game. Like, there's a little thing going on, a little subplot going on, it seems, between Oriali, Stilica, Dremler, and then a, a kind of a rotating cast of Italians just kicking each other. But particularly Oriali and Stilica are just at each other. All. But anyway, 
so he, the re- manager or the referee does not manage that at all. But the goal comes from this turnover, if you like, from Ber- Briegel throwing himself to the ground and Conti away then and Altabelli, great, 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 great finish. Round Schumacher, which we forget. He rounded him like to score. You got to, sorry, you've got to remember that Altabelli is, like, as you say, a great calm in the penalty area. He's got the ball at his feet. It's a World Cup final. Remember, he came on as a sub. He didn't start this game. He comes on after seven minutes. He wasn't... So when the team's around, he's in the dressing room thinking, OK, I'm on the bench, I might get on. He's on after seven minutes. He's got to get his head around that, all that sort of stuff, and then he puts the cherry on the cake at the very end of the match, keeps his head, beats Schumacher, ball in the back of the net, and the cup is theirs. Like Germany, the case for what went wrong, like how bad were they now that we stopped for a second? Because they get the goal from Breitner at the end, and that's grand, that's where the 3-1 comes from. But this is a team that like had just toppled France. They should have been there. They should have been at their best. They weren't. I guess we can all feel how they felt getting to the end of this tournament, how absolutely knackered they must have been. And, <laughs> what the, um, we've, we've, we've absolutely stolen our way to this yeah, point. Uh, and, yeah, and there's been a <laughs> what few... What are we doing here? <laughs> a few casualties. No, but I, I think, again, listen, uh, I think with the with the benefit of hindsight and kind of reading and being able to research everything we have and, and looking at all of these things, we realise that fatigue was an absolutely huge factor for them and how even the personnel that Italy could rotate into their team were to, uh, you know they were of a much higher quality than probably what uh, West Germany had available to them coming into the tournament they weren't you know this was the tournament I guess of of, of what many people hoped would be Brazil and, and France um, so even in that conversation they weren't considered um, you know as 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 favorites either I suppose from bookmakers point of view or the people's favorite so even for them to be where they were I think was an overextension of of what they had and the semi-final exertions clearly clearly were a little bit too much for them and that energy that Italy brought to this game um, Billy said it I, I you know the first half it's it's funny because you know like thing you know something goes a different way Rumenegger's chance in the first half the one that um that Kieran spoke about, which was a very good chance. He had an over, a guy overlapping him on the, on the right-hand side as well. He didn't use. You know, something else goes different for them, and it's a different game, obviously, but just the, the, the whole momentum and energy of the game was going against them from literally the moment the first half whistle went and second half starts, and you can just feel it all ebbs away from them, and it gets away from them very, very quick. But on the, thir- the, on the third Italian goal, like it's a testament to how kind of audacious that they, that Italy were where even at that point they were pushing for that goal and th- it, that goal nearly summed up the difference between the two teams in both ambition and energy because Conte had no right to sprint the length of the pitch the way he did um, and and for the goal to be finished the way it was so I think yeah I think it's much talked about but energy levels definitely they didn't have the depth of personnel or tactical uh, options I think that Italy had and it all just was was uh, it became too much for them I just think like that they just I mean you got to think about this as well I mean the fatigue from the French game definitely but this is the team that drank the shite out of it at their pre-tournament get together you know their pre-tournament training camp you know they were not I mean Germany at this point are in the middle of a golden era going back to like go back to the 6-6 World Cup you know 6-6 final 70 semi-final, they win it in 74, they win the European Championships in 80. 
there's an in, there's unfortunately for them at this point, there's an inbuilt arrogance in their psyche, it seems, in the national team that they can't get around in this tournament. And it, like they get there, they get to the final, fair enough. And maybe we could be having a totally different conversation if they'd won it. But the primary act, the primary reason is the French game, they're wrecked. But equally, Rumenig isn't fit. Caroline's Rumenig is European footballer of the year, he ain't fit. Like they put Giuseppe Bergami on, who we know is going to become one of the great, great Italian defenders of the era. But he's an 18 year old. With the mustache of a thirty-five-year-old, you know, <laughs> I mean that's that's who they put on Rumenega, and Rumenega has been nullified. Stilig has his best game of the tournament. Breitner has, I think, his best game of the tournament. The rest of them are kind of shown up to be earnest, honest, strong. Litbarski is marked out of it by Gentile, not in a Maradona Zico way either, but he does enough to keep him out of the game. There's one, there's a couple of awful challenges, all right, by him to be fair, but. Um, it just, I just think once at the point, right? Once the second goal went in, even the first goal, it that was kind of it, you know. I just realised Bergamy is probably Tom Hanks and big. That's what's happening there. It's just basically the, the whole benefit. That's what's happening. It's just like, what am I doing in an adult World Cup final? I'll, I'll make it work. Well, Colin mentioned like the you know favoritism. Like leading into this tournament, Germany are the bookmaker bookmakers' favourites. Are they? I saw I saw some bookmakers show initially as favourites in the papers. No, no, no. That's for the final. That's for the final. Coming into the World Cup, the runaway favourites to win it are West Germany, with Brazil second, and money moves favouritism. And what occurs by the time you get to the final is money is following the narrative the people want to see in this Sergio Leone epic, where the Germans are the villain, and Italy are Clint Eastwood. Money has shifted towards Italy because it's aspirational. It's what people want, and they live up to those aspirations. Mick is right. The only player that steps up for Germany is actually the person that we've heard about can be the renegade in the group who tries to lead the group. It's Breitner. And he actually, another footnote, for one one of a, a small group of players that scored in two World Cup finals. You know, that's, that's what he does because he gets that goal laid on for Germany, which is some consolation. But they're way off the pace for most of this second half and Italy are deservedly in the ascendancy. Yeah, no, I was going to say that as Tiron ex- explained, uh, the Germans were favourites. Jupp Derwal's Germany had not lost to a European team in his managership until this moment. They hadn't lost a European team in four years. So despite the fact that they were well beaten by Algeria and the did the, the deal with the devil in terms of the game with Austria to get themselves through and then they bored everybody to death in the second phase against Spain and England and then they cheated the French out of the place in the final, they still somehow made it to the last two as they often do, the Ge- the Germans find a way to make it to the end of competitions, that's why they're so good and why they won so many I think it's ironic that they went on to lose to Northern Ireland two years later and in terms of losing to European opposition I think it might be one of his last games in the qualifier at home, but that's another story No, I was going to say, it's sometimes having um, you know, uh, a Fredo helps, so I was unaware that Germany were, West Germany were uh, the pre-tournament favourites but I think it's instructive because having not known that and watched a fair bit of them in this tournament, I can't understand why they were. Because as Kevin said, they were completely underwhelming in pretty much every game other than the French semi-final when, okay, the uh the you know, the 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 one big incident notwithstanding, they were still pretty you know, they were the assassination of Patrick Battiston. Yeah, they were still they were still very good. But I mean, 
yeah, this to me was a, was not a, a memorable uh, German side at all, West German, West German side at all. So to get to a World Cup final and to lose the way they did is, you know, it's it's you know they didn't, you wouldn't you wouldn't exactly. Um, it's hard to have sympathy for them, that's for sure. Uh, Mick, the quote that you had from Berzot regarding arrogance, like that's that's what West Germany have been guilty of here. Yeah, you know, so he he he's actually he's had a premonition. Ah, uh, he knows, he knows, he knows he's dealing with. He's seen them, and he's he knows he he knows. I mean, and 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 that's the other thing I think as well. It's that fundamental uh, link that the Italian team had with their manager versus the disunity between the, the German manager and their team. That they, you know, can you imagine you know being stand up round the middle of a World Cup final, and then one of your key players roaring at you during the game? It's mad stuff, like. But now, Bears out, Bears Bears out knew the beast that he was dealing with, and he, and I think. I don't know who I can't remember who said it earlier, but I think they were right. The Italians were happy, just to, probably happy just to sit back, which probably affected the spectacle of the game, and just let the Germans onto them and wear themselves out, and then catch them, which is more or less what happens. And I like there's a general, I would imagine, around the world, there was probably a general sigh of relief at that result, and the comprehensive nature as well of the Italian, win, and the beauty of the goals, and the beauty of the celebration, and the beauty of the jerseys, and the beauty of Enzo Bersat's jacket and the whole feel of it. And you know what I loved as well? It's only a small thing, but you know the way the game started in sunlight and ends in darkness? Oh, yeah. I love that. I love that. Even, even that added something theatrical to the whole thing. And the right the right team won. When the final whistle went, I know we spoke about this in the third, fourth place playoff, uh, the referee grabbed the ball straight away. Yeah. And he lifted it up like he'd won the World Cup. He was like, it's <laughs> my trophy. Yeah. I've won it. He, he, he actually steps. Told, he yeah. steps in front of an Italian player. He like intercepts a pass, and he just—it's—it's it's wonderful. I think he actually picks the ball up before he blows the whistle. Actually, he does. He does. <laughs> he absolutely does. Moment. And if Kevin hadn't come on to the third place playoff to tell all of us that you got to keep the ball if you were a referee, none of us would—we'd all be like, "What's going on?" <laughs> and the other thing, then, in terms of lifting trophies, is the actual trophy presentation. The thing that struck me about that, I was I was watching the, the version I watched had Italian commentary, oh, so it was outstanding. It was oh, it was yeah, amazing I stuff. But when Zoff gets the trophy, and all the celebrations begin, when Italy do their lap of honour, it's the defenders that get the cup. It's Dino has the, the cup, then Gentile gets the cup, then Bergami gets the cup, then Sharia gets the cup, then Cabrini gets the cup. No, uh, uh, Bruno Conti doesn't get it until we're halfway around the pitch. <laughs> All the defenders, it's a defensore. They're the guys that won it. That's what it's about. That's what Italian football is. That, that's their DNA, and that's what it's all about. I'd say if Gentile grabbed that cup, there was no one. To, uh, do you want it for the No Lord? argument. Just take it home. <laughs> yeah, 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 you, 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 you take it home. We, we've come to this tournament because of the nostalgia that others have had for it. And obviously, I've. I've been going through the shoot magazines as it was going along and they've got their kind of World Cup wrap up. They're really negative about the whole tournament. They think the football's been rubbish. They think the teams have been rubbish, very average. Like some of the some of the quotes that they carry, they they obviously do their World Cup report card on England, Northern Ireland and Scotland as well, but they have a quote from Trevor Francis, we should have been playing in the World Cup final. 
Instead, we are at home and we know in our hearts that we blew it. We had the chances, but failed to take them. A lot of aspects of the World Cup have been a success for England, but real success is winning. A legacy for England clearly is they now think we have to compete for these, but they're just so dismissive of a poor Italian team, a poor French team, a poor West German team. And you're kind of going, it's amazing how it still lives longer in the memory of fans. And you just wonder, was this just that they were all so cynical about it? As we reach this point, I can see why it holds up as a great World Cup. I really can. It's a good shout, Karen. It's, it's the question as we sit here, like, was it a great tournament? Like, I think it's been brilliant. I what do you want? It's I think not it, about, like, wonderful, wonderful football. No, it's about everything. It's the drama, the colour. Yeah. I think there was great moments and there was great stories. And I think we spoke about the stories in the th- third and fourth place playoff. And, you know, th- those stories, you know, the El Salvador, Algerian stories, stories about the, you know, French team um, and even their legacy to this day or what continued on to 98 for them. They're incredible, but it's even great stories at the time. But like the moments, and I think that's as kids who didn't see it and as we were growing up and learning about football, that 82 World Cup lived large, I think, because of the moments, but also the, the teams, you know, the Brazil team, the French team, and the Rossi story, all of these things. So I don't think the football was particularly wonderful, but I think it was stories and moments, and they had those in abundance. It's it's the look of it. It's it's always been the look of the eighty two World Cup. It's the look of the jerseys. It's the sun. It's the the, dug, the dugouts. The, it it is genuinely though. Know, it is the dugouts. It's the, it looks it looks so unique. It everything looks so dazzling about the eighty two World Cup. And there is a mystique to the Brazilian team. There's an element of mystique. And I think you know the people that you hear. I mean you know. We're on. A, we're of an age range. The six of us, I would say, probably. What are we? Late thirties. I'm twenty two. Sorry, carry on there. Yeah, sorry. Twenty two to probably late forties, fifties, whatever. Right, but you're in that sweet spot. You're in that sweet spot where if we didn't see the eighty two World Cup, we certainly saw the players that came out of it. So the Cabrini's, Rossi, Sardelli's, Cures were still relevant to us as kids when we saw them playing with Juventus a few years later. Altabelli played in Daly Mount Park against Republic of Ireland in eighty five. They were all there, you know. So. Like, we were aware of, of all of that. I think at the time, perhaps there might have been a slight reaction to the expanding of the tournament because that, that, there was real resistance to this. And even in the, in the conversations after this World Cup, they're talking about expanding 86 again. And there's real resistance to the idea of, of opening up the World Cup any more than it already is because there's already too many crap matches in the opinion of people writing in newspapers and people commenting on this stuff, right? So it's not, it's, and we look back at 82 and go, Jesus, it was tight enough, you know. It's fifty-two matches, and like in terms of just, I mean, this is real back of a bar or beer mat stuff now. But like, I just look, I wrote down the fifty-two games, and very quickly went. Did I think that was good, bad, classic, whatever? Ah. Right? And when I did it, when I just did it straight off the bat, I had. Let me see. How did I have? I had eighteen matches. I would call good. Fifteen that were okay. Five Stonewall classics, and fourteen that I would never want to see again. So fourteen bad games out of fifty-two. <laughs> I don't think that's bad at all. Like, I, like take that's a that, good I think, World yeah. Cup. That's a good. It's a good World Cup, and then it has that. I just as Colin said, the stories and the the feel and the color and the the sense of it is is it's what it's you know it's what lifts it and has kept it alive for the last forty odd years. Just one thing again from Shoot. They have their World Cup facts and figures. Do you want me to run through a few of them? Just before you do that, I think Colin watched 12 of those 14 games at uh, Mixed Edit, but carry on anyways, yeah. 
<laughs> and yet he's more upbeat about this tournament possibly yeah, than the rest of us, is. which is fantastic. So, West Germany were uh, favourites? <laughs> what I am going to go through is, you know, we said in the third place playoff that Brazil got the Fair Play Award. FIFA have done their own kind of assessment of who are the good and bad boys in terms of red cards, yellow cards, all the cautions effectively. And they've got New Zealand as world champions, at least when it comes to discipline. The Kiwis were the only World Cup finals not to have a player cautioned in Spain. So I can't understand if they had no cautions how they didn't win the Fair Play Award. Uh, second in the Fair Play League were Scotland, hey. who had just one player booked in their three games. Guess who? who was guess it? who? I know who it was, but let the lads guess. Sinas ah, after Sunes. a couple of seconds. Sinas, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sinas. Yeah. There was only one booking the bad for Ireland. See the whole Ireland, that group. See the Scotland group. Scotland, Russia, Brazil, and New Zealand. There's only one booking in the whole group, and that was Sinas. What World Cup were they playing? Booking in any other games. Mental. Mad. And yet there, there was some very rugged well, tackles. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the bad boys in Spain were Argentina. They returned to Buenos Aires having had two players sent off and another seven shown the yellow card. Oops. Five players were sent off in the 52 matches and a total of 98 yellow cards were shown. Now, some of the other facts and figures. Total goals, 155, which, you know, if what's 52 games, that's a good score on average. It's probably higher than we've seen in subsequent World Cups. Much higher than Italia 90, if you think back. I think Italia 90 was under two. Like, it's probably that's, that's yeah. in the Highest number of goals in a game, 11. The Hungary, 10. El Salvador, 1. Games with no goals, only seven. I'm sure Colin watched all seven of those. <laughs> um, highest scoring team we went through, it was France. Lowest scoring teams were El Salvador and Cameroon, who only managed a goal each. First round attendances, I'll skip the attendances because we're getting into averages, but some of, the, some of the funnier ones, hottest recorded temperature in the first round. 97 degrees for Northern Ireland versus Yugoslavia, which might explain that game. Hottest recorded temperature in the second round. And if you're wondering why the Northern Ireland I'm going to guess. So Can I guess? Can I guess? Yeah. I'm Go going on. to say it's 110 Fahrenheit for Northern Ireland, Austria. Was not our France. That's the one. 100 degrees for Northern Ireland, Austria. Yeah. Uh, hottest semi-final temperature, 94 degrees. So definitely it seems like Northern Ireland got the thin end of the wedge on the temperatures. Uh, the average temperature overall in which games were played was 88 degrees. Fastest goal was Brian Robson, for which make he won... He won a Seiko watch. Very nice. And the leading scorers, we had Paolo Rossi with six. Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, an injured Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, scored five goals in this tournament. Uh, Ziggy Banyak got five. Uh, Zico got four. And the best goalkeeping... This is unbelievable. Was this is unbelievable. Peter Stilton, who went 426 minutes without conceding a goal. Uh, but it... Might not surprise you to know that he did not make our team of the tournament, which is where I'm going to lead us next. So, you can find that team of the tournament with our players of the tournament and our goals of the tournament in a short bonus episode, which is available on our buymeacoffee.com forward slash Espana82 page for those of you who are generous enough uh, to buy us a coffee and many people have up to now and we're very grateful to you for that and I suppose while I'm on a stats roll I'll just roll out a few more for you 
to give you an idea of what's involved in putting a series like this together. And we do this on our own dime and in our own time. So collectively to make these shows, the Espana 82 series, we've watched 52 matches in full and an awful lot of the coverage that goes around that. We've recorded over 60 hours of audio. We've spent 30 days editing that audio and we've spent weeks on research. And we have loved every minute of that. But we are hoping to start another project soon. We have had financial outlays in doing this and obviously I've just given you an example of the time. So for those of you who uh, feel you can do, we'd be most obliged if you could go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Espana82 and donate one, two, three coffees, whatever you can afford. Uh, We'd be genuinely, genuinely appreciative of it. And it will help us do more of this. If that's in fact what you want us to do, maybe you don't. I mentioned earlier on we might come back to Presidente Pertini. He's very visible during this game. It's like he's at, he's, they cut away to him after every goal. Mad, isn't it? Why is this? Why do they do this? Is there a reason? That, well, largely, and I mean, Rob jokingly, when we were off air, said that you could do a movie on this guy's life. Yeah. You, you really could. Yeah. I mean, this guy was born in the 19th century. <laughs> In, in the Kingdom of Italy, which isn't fully unified yet, he, he fights in the First World War, even though he's against <laughs> war. He, he's anti-fascist and imprisoned for being so in between the wars. He uh, is involved in the partisans during the latter part of the Second World War. He, he's, he's Italy's grand old man. And... Italy hasn't unified until the end of the First World War. They haven't got all their territories back. So he's a big believer in this resurgence of the Italian state. And as the head of state, he saw this World Cup as they started to do well. Now, we've discussed before that nobody was happy with them at home during the first phase. But once he realized that there was something that he could build on the back of, he was all over the team. And that's why he's such a visible figure during the final. He wants it to be seen that this is Italy becoming great again because their previous two World Cup wins are somewhat seen as stained because they occurred during the fascist regime. So it was really important for him that he could be associated with a resurgence, you know, a third renaissance of Italy. And that's why we're seeing him in this. Like he's at, and like he's in his 80s. And he's jumping up on the seats. He's, he flies back with the team. And there's a, there's a brilliant photograph I saw today of him playing cards with like Bearsot and a couple of the players. He's And the World Cup's and like and the trophies when, on when, the table. It's beautiful. It's an amazing photo. And when he gets home, he's like the greatest moment of his presidency is giving them their civic reception at the palace. You know what I mean? And not to bring Tony Schumacher into every single conversation oh. I've had for the last month. But he had a bit of a problem with Pertini. According to the book, uh, the Schumacher book, um, I, I don't even know where and how this happens, but in the, maybe it's in the post-match when they're getting their losers' medals or something. Um, he was accused of snubbing Pertini. So he didn't shake his hand or he didn't, he didn't show due respect to the president of Italy. And Schumacher in the book's response is like, I just wanted to get off the field as quickly as I could. I didn't even know who the guy was. Um, so, but... 
it gets to the point where there's a formal complaint lodged with the German Ministry of Foreign Affairs over Schumacher's behaviour in relation to Pertini. So he's obliged to go to Rome for an audience with Pertini. But when he gets there, Pertini's perfectly lovely. He has a lovely day with President Pertini and they have a great chat about the match and about football and about life and all things. As I said, we, we had a lovely time. No need for all this hassle at all. There you go. Uh, we should finish with one last reading, really, shouldn't we? And I think given that Colin's been the greatest advocate for West Germany in today's episode, that he should pick the page. <laughs> Just for, I'll very quickly give why I'm not the, I'm a bit of an apologist for West Germany. My, we went on school tours to Germany. Uh, I went when I was 12 and my first ever, uh, my first ever game of football I ever went to was in the Neckar Stadium in 1992. <sighs> wow. Eintracht Frankfurt versus VfB Stuttgart. Tony Boa scored twice for Eintracht, Eintracht Frankfurt. And, um, Wonderful people, wonderful country. Obviously, it was 10 years after the World Cup. So, given that it was 1992, I'm going to go page 92, Mick. Oh, 92. right. That's great. That's a lovely memory. And they are a great footballing nation. I mean, you know, we've had enough. They were the, they were the pantomime villains in this, but, you know, they're in, they're in the middle of a glorious, glorious, glorious run. We had fun with them in Italian. <laughs> I don't even have to. So, the idea is, for anybody, this is, for, is that the Tony Schumacher book is the greatest autobiography of all time. You can literally pick any page Read any line out and you will want to read on. <laughs> okay. Our diarrhea might also have been caused by the large doses of magnesium we were given. So I was told by a doctor friend of mine in Cologne, who was just as sceptical as I was, about the huge quantities of medication. Oh. On that note. That, literally, literally. Oh, no, but Rob, I just have one other no, thing I want to bring in the Panini sticker album from the 1982 World Cup. You know, they used to have double pages for most teams. And then there was always a few teams that they would just give a single page and there was double players on the sticker. Yep. Any guesses at the teams who only got a single page in the 1982 Panini sticker album? Uh, well, I guess New Zealand. One point for Mr. Foley. Oh, well, like, are we picking teams that they would have completely downgraded as, you know, lesser nations? Um, and then could have done quite well. Algeria, point for Mr. Corcoran. That's harsh. Who would have made the second round that they would have made? Kuwait. Oh, the small ones, like. Yeah. Kuwait. Yep. Anyone in the second round? Well, obviously not Northern Ireland because they're local. Hey, Honduras. Still have. El Salvador. El Salvador nailed Mr. Sheridan. Chile? One more. Honduras. Honduras? No. Peru. Chile were worthy of. Hardly Peru. Don't do that. Cameroon. Peru, no. Cameroon oh. are the fifth. Meaning that for some reason uh, in this, and there's definitely some form of bias being illustrated in the way they did it, they weren't so biased against Honduras because they did get two pages. Unconscious bias. I know. We're we're checking out with one final word from everyone, and and a thank you to so many of you who've listened the whole way through, and and many many of you have been following us uh, with our Italian ninety show, with our Euro ninety two. Obviously, we're currently going off now to divide up the World Cup eighty six games. Don't you worry, we're about to start next week. Sorry, lads, I didn't say that was a joke. Uh, But Colin, hope you've enjoyed the experience. I, I know you have underneath those layers. No, you have. No, it's, I'll, I'll miss. I, honestly, Rob, I'll, I'll, I'll miss 
it i missed the conversations it was genuinely wonderful i look forward to listening back to all the episodes of the games i didn't watch billy joe hope you've enjoyed it i know you have you wanted to watch brazil and you got to i have yeah i, I I've, I've done very well and i get to scratch that n- nostalgia itch uh, over and over again so um it's great unfortunately you know when you run out of these things because i think it's your ch- watching these things in your childhood is what makes them special so we've covered a few of the few of them already so uh who knows what's left for us to do kevin our next world cup's gonna be one where scotland surge into the second round i i, I promise you that that's not funny. That one hasn't that bad. one hasn't happened yet, sadly. I know that I'm partially responsible for suggesting this 82 thing to you, so apologies to anybody and everybody involved. Uh, but it's a great a great World Cup. Any World Cup where your own country scores eight goals in three games has to be something that you'll always remember. So great games, uh, great nostalgia, great chat with you guys. Loved every minute of it. Thanks, Mel. Ah, it's been great to have you along. Mick. You ready yeah. for next one? <laughs> you mentioned Mexico 86. I know you're joking, right? You're freaking yeah, joking. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, yeah, mm. no, I need to go in on and just put, put my head in a bucket of Alka Seltzer for, for about a month after after this experience. No, it's been it's been fast. Because I like again, like like most of us, I, I had never seen these games before in full. So and it's always interesting doing this process to engage with these matches in full. And just to see around the stuff that you already know and what you learn, and it's been, it's been really fascinating. And it was, it was a really, really good World Cup, a great World Cup. Yeah, it was brilliant, Kieran. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it. Always do when we're talking football, but this was coming to it fresh. Not really knowing, you know, obviously knew about Italy, but the rest of it's been a, an eye opener. Thoroughly enjoyable. And to reassure the listeners, yes, we're not doing Mexico '86 just yet. No. But we will be back soon with something different. Um, so one day at a time, football podcast is coming very soon. Brilliant. Uh, Mick, we need to thank our... Do you know one of the things that I, I keep forgetting to say in the recordings because I'm enjoying it when I'm listening back is the music. It's bloody brilliant. I, I'm so, so happy with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it was... Uh, yeah, same guy who did our Euro 92 music. Uh, Alan O'Mahony, who's... Uh... He's an old musician type sort of fellow with loads of keyboards sitting around at home. He needs to be doing something. He gives him something to do, you know. He's a nice so creative. I love it. We, we just told him we want some Latin flair, a bit of early 80s vibes. He nailed it. All right, that's it from us. Enjoy that. Sign up to buymeacoffee.com forward slash España82. And, uh, you know, buy us a coffee. It'll just help us get together our new show for you. Hope you enjoyed it, folks. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, lads. Ciao. Adios. Adios.